you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. There are those minor prophets that you come across in your reading, and uh, you may struggle through a bit of the content there, and, and they're what I call historical context heavy, right? That's why we struggle with some of the prophets. If you're not mindful of the circumstances under which the book itself is written, there may be a lot of its content that is really difficult to understand. And then there's a lot of repetition. They often say in jest, there's just so many ways God can say, I'm going to kill you. And, and that's kind of the message of the prophets. Most of the time when the prophets show up is bad news for the people that they're preaching to. There's always a message of hope. Thank God for that. There's always grace and the promise of restoration. But there's pretty commonly a message of, of judgment or chastisement that the prophet brings as well. So you can sort of struggle through a lot of those minor prophets. But Habakkuk is really built around two primary questions that the prophet asks and that God answers. And they just happen to be questions that most everyone is asking even now in the 21st century. In fact, they're questions that I have wrestled with with non-believers even in recent days. Namely, how is it, God, that you in all your goodness can allow that such atrocious things happen in the world around us. And then God reveals an answer which seems to be unsatisfying to Habakkuk the prophet. Uh, he, he says, Lord, how long will I cry and you'll not answer? And then God answers, and Habakkuk doesn't like the answer any better than he liked not knowing. Th those two questions really drive the message of Habakkuk. Question one is asked early in chapter one, question two later in chapter one, an answer provided in chapter two, and then Habakkuk just prays and celebrates the Lord in the third chapter of Habakkuk. But I think this is a minor prophet book that uh, you'll find interesting and helpful and even encouraging. Of the minor prophets, Habakkuk is often one of the favorites. If you've ever wondered what the Lord is doing, how he's at work in a situation that seems impossibly evil, this is the book for you. I think we have to be honest, there are times when bad things happen, evil things happen, and we simply can't account for what good might ever come from those circumstances. Most of the time, what we like to do is strain our brain and try to come up with ways that God could potentially work to bring some good from a bad situation, but then there are those times when we just flat can't see it. There's just no way, from our perspective at least, that God could make something good out of this scenario. If you've ever been there, and unfortunately many of you have, Habakkuk helps us to find some answers with regards to those pressing questions. Now, the setting for the book of Habakkuk is late in the history of the nation of Judah. Judah is those, the southernmost part of the kingdom in the south. You have the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, Judah being the largest, and so the nation bears its name. And in the southern kingdom, in, as, as, as though the primary threat were neighboring nations and the Babylonian army bearing down, Babylonians are, are growing in power off to the east, but the Babylonians at this, at this interval in history are not the problem of the people of Judah. 
The problem for the people of Judah are not people on the outside, it's people on the inside. Judah is operating within a system that is rigged against the lower classes. Judah is operating within a system that is gamed against those who are faithfully committed to the command of God. Habakkuk is speaking from a scenario in which no deed went unpunished. If you sought to do what was right, you would be persecuted or in a, at least in a disadvantaged position as a result of that. And often in Judah, to do the wrong thing was rewarded greatly. In other words, in business, if you sought to deal fairly with people, that was regarded as a negative and would put you at a deficit in competition with someone who did business in an unjust or unfair manner. Now, maybe you've experienced this in your personal life as well. There are times for us when doing what is right can be quite costly. Maybe even more often than that, there are times for us when doing what is wrong can be beneficial, at least in some short-term kind of way. This is the background for the book of Habakkuk. Now, we have the benefit of looking back through history at Habakkuk's, Habakkuk's experience. It seems that Habakkuk's prophetic ministry starts somewhere around 605 or 600, which probably doesn't mean a lot to us tonight. 605 doesn't mean a whole lot to me, except for the fact that that's about 20 years before 586. And in 586, God sends Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army to come and completely destroy the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, and to carry, carry many of its citizens away in exile. We, we're aware of that. But Habakkuk's audience was not. The unrighteous within Judea were operating with a tremendous amount of confidence. They felt themselves to be invincible. It seemed to them as though nothing could touch them. And one of the things it seems that so provokes Habakkuk to pray as he prays in the beginning of chapter 1 is the idea that not only did the oppressor believe himself to be untouchable, but the oppressed believed the oppressor to be untouchable. They saw themselves as small within this system, small within this game. For them, there was no hope. That's where we begin in verse number 1. Here the Bible says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you don't save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Now, you may have found yourself at certain times in life, you may have found yourself today in the very position, in the very frame of mind that we find Habakkuk in our passage. How long, O Lord, will the righteous cry out for justice? How long, O Lord, will you bear with violence? How long, O Lord, Will you bear patiently with so much evil in the world today? It's a good question. How is it that God, who loves justice, bears with the injustices of this world without exacting judgment against the unrighteous and providing refuge for the faithful? We found some answers for that if we were listening carefully, reading along carefully in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Our hope is not fixed in the here and now, but on the heaven that awaits us with Jesus. We're able, in a way, to be dismissive of the discomfort that this world is constantly thrusting upon us because of what awaits us in the presence of Jesus. We're not dismissive of the sanctity of life, the preciousness of what God has entrusted to us. But we're keenly aware of the fact that our hope, what wakes us up in the morning, is not the prospect of a better tomorrow in the flesh, but a a better tomorrow that awaits us on the other side in the presence of our Lord Jesus. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit in that a great deal of what, what holds back, what restrains the vengeful hand of God against us is His mercy and His grace. I might ask in frustration how it is that God could bear with the wickedness of this world and not exact judgment in a single moment. But I might just as easily have asked of my own life, how is it, God, that you were able to bear with my foolishness for all those years and did not exact judgment in a single instant? It's his patience and long-suffering toward us that compels the Lord to restrain, to withhold judgment, even when we have determined from our perspective that judgment is the only proper recourse. God's grace exceeds our own. The Lord replies, beginning in verse number 5. He says, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for something is taking place in your days that you'll not believe when you hear it. Habakkuk, I'm about to do something that will blow your mind. The answer to this question exceeds your comprehension. In verse 6, he says, look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. In other words, they, they are the final arbiter. They determine for themselves what is right and wrong. They regard themselves as the ultimate authority. They believe themselves to be the world's superpower. They are themselves a sovereign nation in every sense of the word sovereignty. Their view of justice and sovereignty stems from themselves. In other words, they believe themselves to be the big dog on the block. And there is no external or religious system that might restrain them in their violence when they come against the nation of Judah. Verse 8, the Bible says their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their face is set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. They sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. They're described here in military language, possessing for themselves um, the, the greatest advancements. They may not seem advanced, but, but the greatest advancements that might have existed for them in terms of military capability, power, and resources. And that's attended by a bloodlust on their part. Their desire is to do violence against those cities that they come against. Habakkuk says, how long, Lord, will you bear with the inequities of Judah? How long will you bear with 
the injustices of Judah. How long will you bear with a scenario in which the righteous are persecuted and put down and the unrighteous are exalted or in an advantaged position? God says, Habakkuk, you're not going to believe the answer to this question. But the answer is, I'm going to send a nation more treacherous than the people of Judah to be my sword, to bear my sword of judgment against the nation of Judah. That is an unsatisfying answer, isn't it? When you think about it, God says, I've chosen the only people on the planet more evil than the people of Judah to be my sword of judgment against the people of Judah. Now, not every activity that unfolds within the world is intended as an act of judgment from God. But this does raise some interesting questions for our own situations in recent decades. Evildoers within Judea thought they were untouchable. But God was raising up a mighty nation to bear the sword of judgment against them. It's always a dangerous place to be in when we believe ourselves to be untouchable. God has a remarkable knack for breaking our pride, for dinging our ego, and bringing us to our knees. And, and, I, and I would have you to know that even those who would shake their fist in the face of our God, they will one day bow the knee. And they themselves, either in salvation or in judgment, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The only living Lord Jesus bears all authority. It would be very easy for us to move past this notion very quickly and just to accept it and embrace it. And in a sort of sterile setting environment, that would be easy for us to do without really wrestling with the full implications of that. But if you're here this evening and you're suffering, and, and especially if you're here this evening and you're suffering at the hands of someone who is hell-bent on evil, this is a word of encouragement, right? That one, one day, that one day, not only will there be restoration for you, but one day there'll be retribution for them too. I, I realize that we are called to grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness, but there is a place in the economy of God for justice too. It was asked, uh, it was an article written, it was pretty popular, and maybe you saw it, it kind of made its rounds in social media, and I've made reference to that article a few times in our Wednesday night Bible study, but back in the beginning of all that was happening uh, years ago in Syria with ISIS, and that's still to some extent an issue now, the, the article was, was titled, Should We Pray for the Salvation of uh, Members of ISIS or Should We Pray for Their Judgment? And the answer to that question is yes. That's, that's the answer, yes. We pray for their salvation and we pray for their judgment. If you are hurting, especially if you have been hurt, there is some consolation in the knowledge that there is coming a day when justice will be served. I, I, I think we'll become more and more aware of that as it seems to be more and more difficult in our culture for any manner of justice to be found within the justice system. But there will come a day when a court will be held in which there are no technicalities. And God will mete out in perfection the proper, proper penalty for every crime not atoned for by the blood of our Savior Jesus. And furthermore, there will come a day 
when God himself draws near to every bloodletting martyr and wipes away every tear and makes the pain and the suffering and the difficulties of this life a thing of the past, small in comparison to the glory that has embraced us in the presence of our Savior Jesus. I'm going to have to keep moving left and left and left, aren't I? So Habakkuk has his initial answer. And the answer is Judah is going to be the sword of, or rather Babylon is going to be the sword of judgment against the nation of Judah. And as I said before, that was at least for the time being in Habakkuk's ears an, an unsatisfying answer. Look to chapter 2. In fact, it begins in chapter 1 in verse 12. My apologies. Chapter 1 in verse 12, the Bible says, Are you not from eternity, Yahweh my God, my Holy One? You will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined, destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? God, you picked the only people on the planet who are worse than us. And, and you've elected to use them to bring judgment against us. Habakkuk has to wait for this response. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, I'll stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he'll say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. It, a, it's difficult for me to judge the tone of Habakkuk here. Is he waiting patiently for the response of God? Or is this more Habakkuk saying, all right, now what do you have to say for yourself? I'm not sure which of those it is that Habakkuk is driving it here, but in any event, the Lord answers in chapter 2 and verse number 2. The Lord answered me, write down this vision clearly, uh, write down this vision clearly, inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. It may be hard to tell here, but this is that passage that the Apostle Paul refers to often in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. In verse 5, the Bible says, Moreover, wine betrays an, an arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. Won't all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him? They'll say, woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you'll, be, you'll become spoiled for them since you've plundered many nations. All the peoples who remain will plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who live in them. Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high to escape from the reach of disaster. You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? 
For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. In essence, what God responds to Habakkuk's second question, how could you choose Babylon to be the sword of judgment? God says, well, really, I'm, I'm God, and so I can do what I want to do. That's at the heart of the response here. Which, let's pause there and talk about that for a moment. Who, who are you and I to make a moral judgment with regards to the character of God? I find myself being met with this objection from non-believers more and more, struggling with the apparent character of God in certain episodes in biblical history. Where, where does that come from? Who, who are you to reply against God, O oh man? We're bound to culture and time and history and conditioned by our environment. Our convictions, our values, our morals change as quickly as the weather. People. We, we are driven in terms of our convictions, our morals, our values. Every wind and wave turns and twists our opinions and positions on any number of issues. And yet we've allowed ourselves to position ourselves such, at least in our imagination, so that we might pass judgment on the character of God. He is God. What God does is right because he's God. It's, it's essential to his character. And we're really in no position to cast judgment, to pass judgment. Right? Right? I'm anxious to talk about these issues a bit in relationship to the resurrection of Jesus in the next couple of weeks. If Jesus is alive, and he's the only Lord who's alive, then your objections are your problem. They're certainly not his. He says, I'm God. And part of what comes with the territory of being God is I get to do what I want to do. And part of what comes with the territory of being subject to the God of heaven is that we get to rejoice in what it is that he does, essentially good, because he is a good and faithful God. Now, God is going to use Babylon to bring judgment against them, and this sort of militates against common thought. We tend to think that God is using people who, who are submissive to his will or who have a desire to do what God would be pleased in them doing. But did you know that God is working for the performance of his will, not just in the lives of his people, but even in the lives of those who would shake their fist against him? There, there is no man, there is no wicked king, there is no evil dictator that God cannot and will not use to bring his purposes about in the world. God, God has positioned him. God is using, even before Nebuchadnezzar knows it, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army, bent on disaster and destruction and pagan in all of their ways, to be a, 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 a disciplinary movement in the life of Judah, to be a corrective for the people of God, to separate wheat from chaff that God might preserve for himself from among the nation of Israel a remnant all his own, that, that they might be sifted and sanctified as a people. 
And God is pleased often to use the same kind of folks in our lives to refine us, to shape us, even to meet our needs at times, to provide for certain needs. God, God often will dip into the storehouses of the unrighteous to provide for the needs of his people. That's in essence the response that's provided here. Here at the conclusion of our reading in verse 14, God makes a guarantee, God makes a promise. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. God says, I'm going to work in a way that may be confounding to you, but my involvement of the nations, nations that may, in the case of Babylon, be even more unrighteous than Judah, is, is just part and parcel of what I intend to do in the world. God, God makes a guarantee here that the knowledge of his glory will consume the earth as the waters cover the sea, so the earth will be covered with the knowledge of God's glory. Sometimes we think that you get to the New Testament. All of the Old Testament is about God reaching the people of Israel. Then you get to the New Testament, and then there's this radically different thing where God is going to reach out and minister to Gentile people, and all the world can now come to him. But there is an international missions focus from the very outset of the Bible. The calling of Abraham is intended to be a means of being a blessing to who? The nations. You have the involvement of Ruth and her being wed to Boaz and joined in the genealogy of Jesus, her a Moabitess. You have Rahab the harlot, a Gentile woman, and noted in the genealogy of Jesus as holding a critical place in the history of God's people. But in countless ways, passages like this that for whatever reason were just dismissed, it seems, in the days of Habakkuk and even in the days of Jesus, guarantees, guarantees assurances. Romans 9, 7, Revelation 9, 7 assurances, even in Habakkuk 2, 14, that God would make his name known, gathering to himself a people of every tribe and tongue and nation. In the close of Habakkuk, in fact, from chapter 3, verse 1 on, we have a prayer here, and some would isolate the last few verses of chapter 3 as a song of praise. I'd like for us to read through. This is how, in essence, Habakkuk responded to the answers he received from the Lord in asking these two questions. Look to verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. I, I would note here, this is how we ought to respond when we ask pressing questions and God shows his credentials. That's what he did in Habakkuk, right? He said, here's my ID. I'm God. God. Habakkuk says again in verse 2, I heard the report about you, and I stand in awe of your deeds. In verse 3, the Bible says that God comes from Teman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. That is to say that He comes down from the highest place. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from His hand. This is where His power is hidden. Plague goes before Him, and pestilence follows in His steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kushan in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. 
Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow, the arrows ready to be used with an oath. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty resonance. At the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear, you march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the great waters. Now there's all kinds of symbolism and imagery in what we've read here in this prayer of praise and thanks that Habakkuk offers. And we could work through each of these images independently, but together what they mean for us and what Habakkuk is expressing is that God is greater than what he had perhaps imagined. And I would suggest to you and for me that God is greater than what we had imagined. Sometimes I think we ask the kinds of questions that Habakkuk asks here. God, how long will you allow this evil to be perpetrated against your people? Or God, how could you use a people more wicked than Judah to bring judgment against Judah? We ask these questions because our view of God is far too small. We simply don't have the perspective that he enjoys. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is a great and awesome God. There's a measure of terror that comes with that. Habakkuk speaks of God dividing the earth, tearing through the earth as he passes over, utilizing, using the rivers to tear through the earth. He, he sees the power of nature, the movement of water, as an expression of this great and unrestra unrestrained, uncontrollable power that God himself enjoys. God is greater than the God of our imagination, exceeding even our comprehension in his, in his power. And I have found personally that reminding myself of the bigness and the power and the lordship of our God over us in seasons of great suffering are the greatest comfort to my soul. I have said and will forever say, the sovereignty of God is the most encouraging and comforting doctrine to me in all of the Bible. That no matter what happens in my life, it has not escaped the attention of my God. It is no match for the power of my God to turn it back or to turn it for my good. And even when I can't understand it, when the pain is unbearable, I can rest confidently that God is at work in this for my good because nothing escapes his power. There's comfort in that. In the same way that a child runs to the strength of his father, if you will remind yourself in seasons of distress of the strength of our heavenly father, there is comfort and consolation for our soul, no, no matter how disastrous or stressful or anxiety-filled the circumstances of our life might prove to be. God is bigger often than what we give him 
credit for. Thankfully, Habakkuk provides us with an opportunity to look in on this back and forth between himself and God and to, to bear witness to the credentials that God reveals for Habakkuk, reminding him of just how great he truly is. In the closing verses, verses 16 through 19, this seems to take a different tone. There's a certain rhythm about what Habakkuk says here that suggests that his prayer has ended and a song of praise has begun. I heard and trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound and rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. This is the way we respond when we meet with God, by the way. Isaiah said, woe is me. And Habakkuk said, my bones became as rottenness within me. It's, it's seldom this ecstatic, exuberant experience as depicted in every seeker model church, right? This experience that we might have when we meet with God. More often when we find the people of God meeting with God, our experience is not of jubilance. Our experience is, is as though our bones become as rottenness within us. We tremble in his presence. Habakkuk goes from defiantly asking questions to trembling before the sovereign God of heaven, his bones as though rotten within him. In verse 17, the Bible says, Though the fig tree doesn't bud and there's no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He confesses there is no earthly reason to take heart. And there is no indication that things are going to get better in the short term. I'm going to wait for you to do what you promised you'd do. And I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. God is good, isn't he? Sometimes I fear when we talk about books like Habakkuk that just our language, we speak in platitudes sometimes and maybe we can come off as being cliche and, and, and we can really, I think, sometimes cheapen the significance of what God is describing here. And maybe my suggestions for you in seasons of great difficulty you don't find especially helpful. I, don't, I wouldn't know how to answer those challenges. But I, I am confident having walked through a few seasons of difficulty myself, that the counsel that Habakkuk provides for us here, that we would rest in the strength of our God like a child flees to the strength of his father, that we would remember the greatness of our God, his power over all things, that we would yield to his wisdom as superior to our own. There, there's, there is hope in that. There's, there's restoration and, and promise. Like I can sleep at night knowing that God in heaven will not be napping through the night, right? When, when things are beyond my control, they have not escaped the attention of my God. Rest in a good and faithful and holy and sovereign God. He has our life and every life well in hand. A good and faithful judge who always does what is right. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, 
for the comfort we find here. God, I suspect that there are some here tonight for whom this is especially relevant, who are hurting in some way, perhaps more deeply than they've ever hurt before. And I pray through the work of your Holy Spirit, by the teaching of your word, you would encourage them and hold them up, God, that they would, as we've said, flee to your great strength. But God, perhaps uh, more commonly, there are those of us who have yet to suffer in the deepest of ways. Lord, for many of us, our, our lives still hold for us a season of suffering that is beyond anything that we have imagined. And I pray that you would build foundations of faith and trust in you even right now. That, Lord, when, when the winds of life come, when we are shaken, that our foundations would hold. That on that day when the diagnosis is not what we had hoped to hear, when the tragedy is beyond what we believe we can bear, I pray that you would remind us, Lord, that the first thought that would run to the front of our mind would be of your greatness, that there's a place of safety and refuge in you, that you are a God to the fatherless, that you love the least of these, that you draw near the brokenhearted. God, I, I pray that you would build that foundation in our hearts and minds tonight, that you would grant great conviction, conviction that would not fold on the darkest of days. God, I ask this through the work of your Spirit and in the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.